Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Accommodation Matters. This time we'll be looking to the future and what it holds for the student accommodation sector. I'm Darren Ellis, United Students Higher Education Engagement Director. We're the UK's largest provider of PBSA. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sue Rigby, Vice-Chancellor at Bath Spa University, Ian Dunn, Provost at Coventry University, Paul Sweeney, Chief Strategy Officer at Unite Students. Thank you all so much for joining me today. We're also joined this month by Alistair Wilson. Alistair is Director at Waverley Consultants and the Futures and Leadership Associate at Future Thinking Consultancy, Ash Futures. He's been helping us to think about some future challenges here at Unite Students, and he'll be putting forward some provocations for our other guests about what the future might hold. And our guests today have the challenge of making sense of this for the higher education sector and how it might impact student accommodation in particular. In the past 12 months, universities, students and accommodation providers have been tested like never before by a public health crisis that keeps changing. Universities have suddenly had to provide quality online teaching. Students have had to get to grips with remote learning, socialising and exams. And accommodation providers have had to deal with a whole host of new responsibilities to students during a time when they might be ill, self-isolating or lonely with limited access to their support networks at home. And I think we have all seen how this has accelerated certain trends, such as online higher education, while bringing others to light, such as the digital divide. The lockdowns we've experienced have also made us all think differently about things such as climate change, commuting, and indeed, even where we live. So Alistair, with all of this in mind, please can I ask you to share your first provocation with our guests? Thanks very much, Darren. I'd like to ask everyone to imagine that COVID has receded internationally. And wouldn't it be nice if this was soon? When that happens, do you think universities will return to business as usual or will they emerge as something different? And if so, what will that look like? Thank you, Alistair. Uh, Sue, I'd like to hear from you first, if I may. Thank you both. It's a really interesting provocation. Um, I'm so old now that I've lived through several points in time where the digital was going to take over and revolutionise higher education and, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, and I think what we've learned from the pandemic is both the affordances and the limitations of digital learning. It can work superbly in particular circumstances, but it's not a panacea that can radically alter higher education. And when we've asked our students what they want more than anything else, they say we want to come back onto campus and learn with one another. So I think what the pandemic has done is make us realise that learning, particularly for younger people, is a social activity. And they're learning as much from their peers or by watching their peers interact with the academics as they are from the academics themselves. And, and I think, you know, we'll keep small things, lectures online. Why would you ever go back to 500 people being brought out of their heads in a the lecture theatre when the academic can, you know, chunk that stuff up into six minute fragments, um, repeat bits that they didn't manage to be clear about and, and present them online for folk to, to learn ahead of a seminar or a tutorial. But I think in essence, we'll bring people back onto campus. And I think the big difference is that we'll understand how important that sociability is and probably focus a lot of enhancement on that. And, you know, it, it's a really major thing when the pandemic ends that we will have 
a cohort, a generation of people who've grown up on their own in bedrooms and, and you know, unite rooms and, and accommodation that universities provide. And we are going to have to reach out to help them socialise again, both for learning and for well-being, I think. So I, I suspect the changes paradoxically will be more about socialisation of learning than the digitalisation of learning. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that are re that's really struck me about the pandemic is it certainly taught us the, the value students place on their sort of personal formation as well as their academic one, you know, their social networks and development of life skills, for example, which you've, which you've referenced. How is your university actually thinking about this in terms of the next intake of students? What specifically might you have in mind to support uh, the generation that you've, you've just described and the way they've had to learn in the last 12 months and in some cases, um, you know, for the last two, at the end of one academic year uh, and into this this current one? We're taking a three-year approach to this. We think it'll be too big a problem to sort out in a few weeks at the beginning of the first semester. Um, but we are also changing the entire pattern of teaching in the first semester next year, next academic year, uh, to put the focus on socialising, learning in groups, working with one another face-to-face. -face. For some kids, just helping them get out of their bedrooms and for others, helping them to keep a sense of work ethic once they've got out of their bedrooms. Um, but but our focus is going to be primarily on the social. And we, we will, obviously, we always focus on the intellectual and, and the knowledge kind of part of what we do. But all of the extra resource we have is going into helping people come back into social learning. And we think it'll take three years to get to a point where those kids are back to where they would have been otherwise. Thank you, Sue. And, and Ian, you know, what, what, what do you think, uh, what do you make of what Sue has just said and, and what other items do you think might emerge uh, as a result of the crisis? Well, well, first of all, everything Sue said, I, I, I sort of agree with. The, the, the social aspect of learning is clearly um, something that we've known about always, actually. Uh, the fact that we've rather tried to crush it or deny it um, is to our shame. And, and we, we ought to um, learn lots from the, the current situation about the way in which we learn, the way in which we learned and the way in which our, our students now learn. Um, and Sue's point, uh, particularly about the, 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 the promise of the digital to transform uh, higher education, uh, as Sue says, has, has, has been along many times before. And, um, However, I think we have learned a lot of new stuff in this current situation um, that, um, th that there are things that we need to use digital very much as part of the teaching and learning process, that, we, that there are things that it does that allow us much more freedom to, um, as educators to, to support learning rather than to, to deliver content. The technology is rather good at delivering content, uh, and we should exploit that uh, to a maximum. We're nowhere near good enough. Nowhere near good enough. In your introduction, Darren, you talked about um, a quality high, a quality online. I don't actually think we were anywhere near the quality that we we could achieve and we can achieve. We did a fantastic job. We supported, make sure that learning outcomes have been met, but that's not in itself enough. The the opportunities to to create social learning both physically and online so that, that, that students are um, working in those groups and, and, and learning and developing in, in, in both spaces, if you like, um, is, is now real. 
Um, part of it is to do with the virtual learning platforms and the ways in which we construct um, our online learning. Um, historically, universities, of course, have been filled with lots of people who are fantastic subject experts, as they should be. I think in the future, we're going to be looking at um, academic teams, which are made up not only of subject experts, but of pedagogic experts, of people who are designing the learning journey alongside those academics so that students, um, so that the online content can be developed in a, in, in a, in a more supportive uh, way. So you made a very interesting point about lecture theatres, and there's a, a joke going around Coventry that I've currently got all the keys to the lecture theatres in my pocket, and I'm not going to release any of them to anyone ever again. I, I don't think that's quite true. I think the lecture can be a fantastic experience if it's done uh, in, um, in, in some rather interesting ways. And what's really fascinated me is that students say to me um, that actually they go to the lecture theatre for the content particularly, because they can pick that up on the, the recording that's on the online uh, systems later. And this was before the pandemic. They go for the social experience. They go to see their friends, the wider social group, which is really, really interesting. So I think what I'm really getting around to saying is that digital, we've got a whole journey still to, to take in the digital space. We can build uh, fantastic systems which um, are very much in support of face-to-face um, of -face learning. Um, I think we have a lot to learn about the way in which we put our academic teams together in order to better design for the future. And I think we have an enormous amount of work to do in the, um, in, in the spaces that we create in which learning takes place. And as we start to remove that idea of the big lecture theatre so that we have more flexible spaces where social learning, peer learning and, and group learning can take place, uh, I think we have um, quite a lot of um, thinking to be done. The, the worrying thing is, of course, that if we don't do it, I think, rather quickly, or at least if we don't lock in some of that learning really quickly, then I think the risk is that we will drift back to something rather like business as usual. And I think that would be a huge shame and, and actually to the detriment of, uh, of generations of students to come. So lots to, lots to do. Indeed. And I just wanted to touch on one thing um, that Coventry is well. Coventry is well known for many things, but it's also a significant international student recruiter. And I, I wondered what the impact the pandemic has had on international recruitment uh, for universities in terms of students, overseas students studying in the UK this year and in the future, the likely uh, uh, the likely sort of return of international students to the UK in the academic years to come, but also what this online uh, opportunity is providing in terms of transnational education or more blended learning opportunities. What are your thoughts about that international student market? Well, I think there's quite a lot of questions in that one question, Darren. Um, uh, the, the first part, I think, is international student um, recruitment into the UK. Um, and, and that's incredibly territorially sort of differentiated, I think, and has been all the way through this um, uh, the last uh, period. We're about to start our third intake, um, which will be in May um, of the year. We have three intakes uh, per year. Um, what we see is demand is incredibly strong, but there's a nervousness in the market. And, um, and, and every time the government makes a change, or governments around the world make changes, that has impacts on, 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 on perceptions and about delay or, 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 
or, or bringing forward uh, of that study. So I think the demand for um, international education is going to continue to grow, um, mainly because of the reasons that Sue identified in her opening, which was that, that learning is a social experience, and that social experience is also about the um, uh, about that experiential moment of being with people from different cultures and different backgrounds and um, and experiencing different things. Um, so that's 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 the first part of the answer. Yes, the digital really does afford uh, an opportunity for the development of even better uh, transnational education and uh, and partnerships with the sharing of content and the sharing of um, of uh, of learning objects, if I could describe them that way, um, which I think means that quality assurance and um, the management of, of of the of the learning experience can be can be enhanced. Um, so I, I think the the futures for um, international education rather depend, as uh, in the as first part of my answer, on on our responses to the the current. Um, opportunities that, that, that we have, um, that, that the situation has brought about. Lovely. Thank you. Lots to consider there. Um, Paul, um, what implications on the student accommodation sector might we see from Sue and Ian's suggestions? Yeah, thanks, Darren. I know you were probably hoping for a bit of debate and controversy, but so far I'm afraid I'm in violent agreement with Sue and Ian. Um, you know, technology, I think, in digital will enhance the experience, but not replace it. Uh, the, the thing that we know about um, about the people that come to stay with us and the students we support is that, you know, going to university is about so much more than, than learning. It's about that rite of passage. It's about finding yourself. It's about finding your tribe. It's about becoming an independent adult. Um, the social aspects are so important. Uh, so I, I, I'm in full agreement um, with them both. So I, I think the interesting points around the cohort that has, you know, has been through COVID and taking a number of years to recover. I think that's right. I think n normally um, in student accommodation, we we spend sort of the first the first term really helping people to settle in. But I think we're conscious that that's going to be a much longer process now for for this next cohort that we have to come to live with us. Um, and I think the other aspect. For, for student accommodation, apart from increased um, support on that social side and, and certainly on the mental health side, it, it, is that our buildings will have to be more flexible in, in how we create that shared social learning space and, and perhaps less, you know, more about pure socializing space, but more about flexible space that can adapt to the needs of a new type of learning as, uh, as the university changes its model somewhat. That's great. Thank you, Paul. Um, the changing nature of HE that's uh, been described um, nicely leads to our second provocation, which is about the changing nature of jobs and skills and how that will impact on higher education. Uh, Alistair, over to you, please. Thanks, Darren. The, the World Economic Forum estimates that in order to meet the demands of the fourth industrial revolution, where manufacturing and industrial practices will become increasingly automated, there's going to need to be 100 million new jobs created in major economies by the mid-2020s. These are going to be in areas like artificial intelligence, data science and cybersecurity, and other new forms of technological jobs. There's a school of thought that some of these skills will be better obtained through vocational training rather than through higher education. 
Thank you, Alistair. Uh, Ian, what do you make of this? What kind of changes might we see in higher education as it adapts to meet the demands of the fourth industrial revolution? I'm afraid this, this always sort of makes me laugh somewhat. The idea that, um, uh, that some skills um, are, have not always been better developed through vocational training rather than through higher education. But that doesn't mean that, voca that the vocational training and higher education are in conflict with each other or in, um, in, in sort of opposition. You know, th those two things sit absolutely alongside each other. There are absolutely some skills which are better trained by, by repetition and doing and, 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 and experimenting and, and so on. Um, but the skills of higher education are about critical thought and about resilience and about all of the other sorts of things that we talk about a, a great deal. Um, it, it's a, a social rite of passage. It's, it's all sorts of things which make a higher education a higher education. You know, we could go back, um, we could go back, um, a hundred years, um, and, and say, well, you know, what's the point of raising the, um, the, the school leaving age from 14 to 15, 16, perhaps not even a hundred years ago? My, my own father left at 15. Um, uh, and, and then the moving of school age to 18. And, and effectively, education is one of those things as the economy becomes more developed, that, that we need um, higher order um, thinking skills uh, alongside the practical and vocational skills um, that, that allow us to do those specific tasks and those specific uh, specific jobs. I, I, I would certainly not, and I don't think this has ever been the case. You know, when I graduated as an engineer, the idea that I was then an engineer, um, fully formed, uh, it was ridiculous. You know, I had an engineering degree or a number of engineering degrees, um, but I needed practical and vocational skills in order to do particular jobs. And so those two things uh, sit alongside them. I think the exciting bit is, is about how we start to embed um, more of those um, higher order skills into a higher education and where they fit into the curriculum or the extra and co-curricular spaces. So I think there's some really exciting sort of opportunities here for us to uh, to be creative and to think um, not to diminish the higher education elements of uh, the higher learning elements of, uh, of a degree or um, a higher degree, but to, um, to embed around that uh, some of the vocational and the uh, practical and the industrial and commercial uh, skills that, um, that, that that make sense. Therefore, the partnership has never been more important between uh, higher education and industry than, than I think it's going to be over the, over the next period. And the final point I would make is just in a slightly more abstract sense, but you know, um, a higher education that was fit for purpose allegedly fifty years ago served a population that was about five or six percent of the of the of the cohort going into higher education. We're now dealing with a cohort of fifty percent. People like Nick Hillman argue that we really should be looking towards seventy percent with a higher education. That doesn't mean that people will only operate on their degree subject. The idea of the higher education being the training for for a job, I think needs to be we need to move on from that. It's a higher education as a training for um, for um, skills and for uh, resilience and for transferability across a career which is going to fit into not only many jobs but into many um, uh, into many discipline areas as we reskill and upskill. Thank you, Ian. And I was just curious about one, one particular point there around employers. Uh, how engaged are the employers 
that you engage with and work with um, uh, in terms of apprenticeships and vocational training? How how involved are they with the work um, that you're doing with your students? Well, apprenticeships form a, a, a small part of what I'm really talking about here. You know, take the um, take the NHS. All of our nurses and allied health professionals, and that's many thousands a year. Are, are absolutely, you know, we're absolutely embedded in with the with the health service in, in training and, and developing and educating those people. Um, go to an engineering faculty, and a significant proportion of those students will spend a year in industry as part of their as part of their uh, education. Um, there are some areas where it's perhaps less common. But, but again, you know, the, the, the professionals, the professional skills in, in law and accountancy and so on, uh, again, engage uh, employers. So apprenticeships, um, degree apprenticeships or degree level apprenticeships form, um, an interesting new sort of, um, arm to, 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 to this movement. But it's always been happening in, 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 in lots of different forms. Lovely. Thank you, Ian. And Sue, I very much welcome your thoughts on this too. Thank you. I, as usual, I completely agree with with Ian. Um, with, with with maybe a, a slightly different starting point, which is that I think if you look at the jobs that are becoming automated, they're the ones that require the practical repetition of particular activities. And as computers get more skilled and talented, that extends into pretty much the kind of vocational space that's covered in areas like artificial intelligence and, and cyber security. Um, the, the thing that differentiates people and makes them valuable in those workforces is the higher education skills that, that are also skills that are flexible across multiple disciplines, but complex problem solving, critical thinking, creativity. Those are the things that are absolutely crucial to be the human element. And if you imagine jobs being kind of eaten away from the bottom up, where you know you start with the factory production line and you end up in the management suite. The last jobs to go are going to be the ones that rely on those skills. So I, I think that higher education has a very bright future in the fourth industrial revolution, but it has to be operating in a situation where government understands what those durable values will be. And we've got to resist the urge to skill up a workforce for the next set of redundancies. It, it, it's almost like deciding that we're going to teach lots and lots of people to be coal miners. We, we know that those jobs aren't coming back. And I think there's that wave of redundancy that automation is generating through industry that, that we owe it to our young people to be ahead of. Having said that, I think that higher and further education have more to share now than ever before. And, and particularly when the lifelong learning entitlement comes in and we can break up kind of large qualifications into smaller pieces, we can learn an awful lot from the way that further education teaches information and, and practical skills very, very well. And we can supplement that with some of the ways in which higher education teaches those higher skills very, very well. And what I'd really like to see is that balance being met in a way that I think will be much, much more like the German model, for example, than, than anything that, that we're imagining in the UK at the moment. So very strong relationships between FE and HE, but based on that clear understanding that for people to be valued in an automated world, they need high level skills. 
Thank you very much, Sue. And, and Paul, what role might accommodation play in these increasingly sort of tech-heavy courses? What facilities might we see come to the fore? Yeah, I just want to pick up on on some of the points that um, that were made there. I think this this whole area of higher order skills is is particularly interesting. And and actually, Sue mentioned the three skills that the World Economic Forum actually put out there a couple of years ago as the skills for the future. It's the, the creativity, the critical thinking, and the complex problem solving. And 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 I guess my sense is that, um, you know, I agree with what with what both of you guys said. But my, my sense is that there's a great opportunity here because people will probably need to cycle back in to higher education multiple times in the future because of the pace of change. Um, a really interesting example, um, Darren, close to home is. Uh, you know, the, the executive team at, at United Students is now going through an education, um, on, on sort of digital, on, on artificial intelligence and on getting up to speed, um, you know, with some of the emerging technologies that we know that we have to be able to make the right decisions on. And I think those, you know, those needs and the need to sort of continuously educate yourself as, as the world changes will drive more people back in to higher education multiple times and not just, uh, you know, for one degree. Um, so, so I think that, um, if you combine that with getting universities closer to businesses, I, I can foresee a future where many businesses will send their people back to university for potentially shorter courses. And, um, and our accommodation might become a lot more flexible to, to actually accommodate that lifelong learning market as well. Thanks, Paul. And that is a, a very nice segue into uh, one way we might see these changes play out is through the introduction of micro-credentials and short courses that you mentioned. Alistair, can you tell us a bit more about these, please? Yeah, so micro-credentials are short courses that lead to many qualifications in, in specific subject areas, and they offer HE the chance to reach a wider student body. Um, they're ideal for online delivery. And additionally, there's been talk for some time about perhaps shortening or concentrating courses into two years intensive study, perhaps using micro-credentials as part of the way to achieve that. Well, these are a great way to meet the needs of the changing economy in the labour force. They do change the nature of the student experience, particularly uh, what we were talking about in the first question. So will we see the full-time student experience become a luxury in the future? So, Sue, Ian, I know that these are not new ideas. They've been around for many years, but but has their time now come? And what threats and opportunities might they bring? Sue, can I come to you first on that, please? Thanks, Darren. Um, I mean, with all of these things, you have to start with the caveat that we don't know what's around the corner. And an awful lot of higher education success and failure is driven by government incentivization of particular routes of study. And also, there's got to be real richness in seeing a higher education sector diversify into a load of different solutions. So the, the sort of iterative experience uh, that Paul was talking about, where people come back to reskill for a bit, that idea that, that you might need to kind of change career through the medium of higher education. And if you're in your kind of mid-career and you probably have caring responsibilities and you're probably trying to hold down a job at the same time, the last thing you want is to wander around campus, you know, thinking deep thoughts about Shakespeare. You want a, a quick solution. You've already got your higher skills. You just want the knowledge and the information you need and on and out again. So there are scenarios where I think compressed education, micro-credentials, 
part-time study and so on are very rich opportunities for higher education and for learners. Um, but I don't think it's instead of a three-year course, I think it's in addition to that. And what about you, Ian? Coventry University is noted for being innovative in its course offering and modes of learning. Is there anything here you're already working on? Of course, Darren. I'd be uh, <laughs> uh, uh, an outrageous suggestion that we wouldn't be. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, I, um, I, I, I need to say a number of things. I think, first of all, the point about acceleration and micro-credentials um, I understand why there's, there's, there, there could be a thought of association. I, I actually think it goes in the opposite direction. I think if you accelerate a degree course, um, then it needs to be much more curated uh, and much more organized because it's really, really difficult to navigate when you're, when you're compressing learning into, into shorter periods. So I, I'm not sure micro-credentials will help us compress degree courses. Um, I think they offer, um, optionality for extra and co-curricular um but in pure micro-credential form i think it becomes perhaps a, a longer journey rather than a shorter journey the second thing i need to say is i think that the idea of the full-time undergraduate experience has long gone and it's been in, in what we perhaps perceive it to be you know for a commuting student it's a very different experience to a a residential student to an international student. So I, I think we, we, we need to, we need to move on from, um, from sort of, sort of rather lazy sort of descriptions of, uh, uh, of, of what we already have right now. Having said that, um, now moving on to micro credentials. Yeah. Micro credentials are, are going to be a really interesting and important part of, um, of the, um, the extension, the, the things that we've just been talking about. I think Paul talked about the, um, the, the return and the, the, the sort of the, it not being a one-off sort of experience. And I think it's, it, it, it's going to be part of that. Um, for a, an 18 year old arriving at university, um, in a sort of being presented with a suite of micro credentials, I think would be catastrophic to retention and to engagement. It takes an awful lot of knowledge uh, of the system in order to be able to curate and put together all of those uh, bits and pieces, but it serves really well for someone who's already developed the higher order skills that we've just been talking about, um, and, and certainly allows for the, um, the, the the collection of skills and learning and knowledge that that add on to um, uh, that which comes from 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 the um, the traditional higher education experience. I, so I don't think the three year undergraduate course is dead at all. I think it's absolutely got will go from strength to strength. We will see the rise of much more online, purely online learning alongside that, and then the blend in between. Micro-credentials will become a very established part, I think, of the perhaps the master's level provision, and perhaps a, a little lower down than that. Um, so all of those things are really important. And I think for accommodation providers, that means, therefore, you really need to start thinking very quickly very quickly about um, the way in which you contract with students, because if they're not going to be on campuses for for 40 weeks or so a year, then uh, how you sell your product is going to be really, really important. And, you know, you could almost uh, think of the the music industry uh, and the idea of the uh, of, of the LP and, and what happened when the digital sort of stuff came on, the digital revolution came on there. Um, so... I, I urge you to think widely about uh, about your provision too. 
Thank you. Um, Paul, uh, what are your reflections on uh, what you've just heard from, from Ian and Sue? Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about um, the implications for accommodation and, and the sense that we have to be uh, more flexible and more innovative in what we provide. Um, I'm also very interested in um, some of the conversations, Darren, that we've been having with, with some of the, our university partners around the idea of creating new types of community on or close to campus that would would allow us to combine student living, you know, undergraduate with postgraduate with potentially with young professional and um, potentially with short-term learning in a, in a sort of ecosystem that connects the university um, and incubators and technology companies and startups, you know, in, in a sort of thriving community that would be extremely attractive for the types of um, shorter learning visits that we're talking about, as well as uh, adding value to that wider community and making those places where we provide accommodation much more dynamic. So uh, I think there's a really interesting um, navigation through this. And I do, uh, I, I take the challenge that we, we have to really give this a lot of thought and, and be on the front foot as, as the world changes around us. Thank you. Finally, whilst there are some further challenges coming up for higher education in the next few years, both on the topics raised in this podcast and elsewhere, there will also be some exciting opportunities. I'd really like to hear from each of you on what emerging trends in the sector you're most excited about. Sue, could I come to you first, please? Thanks, Darren. Um, two things, I think, for me. One is the opportunity to really crack the issue of student mental health problems. I think we're coming out of the pandemic where it's not just a digital divide and a social divide, but also a mental health divide, we've created real fear in society for some members of it. And I think if universities can stand up to that challenge, not just as a remedial space, but as an actively encouraging of good mental health space, then we'll make a real difference to society. I don't think you can, you can frame it as any less important than that. I think the other thing is that we have real opportunities now to make educational ecosystems in a region that support people from 18 to 80, um, where people might touch a local college, work with employers, do some micro-credentials, come back to university for a top-up after their first degree, and, and generate spaces where we start to actively reach out and support people regionally, because when all said and done, most people probably spend most of their working lives within about a 50 mile radius of, of where they went to school. And I think, again, getting that right and not looking at a kind of pauper's version where we go to the lowest common denominator of, of value for money is going to be really important to the future and, and pandemic recovery for the UK. Thank you, Sue. Uh, Ian, what are you most excited about? Um, well, given that Sue set the precedent, I'll go for two things also. Uh, one of which, um, <laughs> corresponds with Sue's um, uh, second point, which is about uh, education ecosystem. I'd, I'd go a little wider than uh, 18 to 80. I'd say um, two, to, 2 to 80. Um, the idea that universities at the heart of educational systems, um, which includes schools and FE and not diminishing the, the, um, the independence of each of those elements, but, but bringing them in because um, being part of an educational family has an awful lot of benefit. Uh, and so I, I could see the educational ecosystem becoming um, richer uh, and the idea of universities and, and the idea of, uh, of um, one institution having just one university within it is also um, um, interesting. So perhaps what I'm talking about is something 
not unlike some of the aspects of uh, the US uh, state system. Um, interesting possibility for me. And, and the other one is uh, the role of data and, and the uh, our ability to uh, universities are enormously rich in, in data and knowledge about the way in which learning is taking place and students are engaging um, and we can deploy that data with all the relevant safeguards and measures and, and support for students. And, and we can do it to allow us to personalize both the learning and well-being um, journeys of our students through uh, the education. And that, that will contribute to Sue's first point, which is about um, making sure that we uh, we we support and educate people to be resilient, um, mentally healthy uh, well, uh, individuals who, who then build better societies. It does sound very exciting. Um, Paul? Yeah, on that point of better society, I think a couple of things that are really interesting for me, the, the increasing participation across, across um, our domestic students and the increasing demand from international students means that actually universities can be at the forefront of diversity and inclusion, which is becoming you know, such a big issue for society in general. And we're very conscious at Unite, you know, when we have 76,000 students with us, it's a hugely diverse community and we want to really find ways to celebrate that and, you know, make sure that that experience is carried through with students after they leave and, and they can really champion, champion that sort of diversity inclusion agenda as they come out of university because of that diversity that they've enjoyed while they've been studying. Thank you, Paul. And finally, Alistair. Um, it's been really interesting. I think I find myself in agreement with what, what everyone is saying, really, and particularly, um, I think the point about higher education becoming a provider of a, a genuinely lifelong learning experience feels really exciting. Um, and I think that's going to remove any lingering sense that university isn't for me that still prevails in some places. And perhaps a second one as well, kind of going with the, with the spirit of that. I think it's really interesting to think about the role that higher education is going to play and the greater influence I think it's going to have in the realm of making better public policy in the future. I think that's exciting. Lovely. Thank you, Alistair. Well, we're out of time for today, but what an interesting and thought-provoking conversation we've had. My thanks go to Sue, Ian, Alistair and Paul for your time. A really interesting look into the future. Thank you also to our listeners. If you enjoyed our podcast today, why not head to our Unite Students Podbean channel and listen to our previous episodes on topics including mental health and international students. You can subscribe there and get updates on all our future podcasts. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Unite Group. We'll be back next month with a brand new panel. Join us then. And until then, take care. Music.